BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. All right, with the tournament finale now firmly in the rearview mirror, it is time to take stock of the other plebeian teams that did not make it here to Las Vegas, 15 and 60 style. Danny, how are we doing it this week? So I, I pitched to you an idea and you you embrace it in part inspired by there not being any games on Sunday. So I was able to do something that we can't normally do, which is I took... BPI, which we're not saying is gospel, and I, I maintain, which I don't, I, I don't know if you know how diligent I do roughly once a week of how teams are performing relative to over unders, and I just do it more just to because as a way of kind of keeping the bigger picture in in scope, like that's just kind of something I like to do, and so the way we're ordering it this week is total distance from a team's over under line so that can be positive that can be negative it's just so we're going to start with the furthest out and then we will end with the closest to the pin which are there are two teams that are a half game away hmm. okay well, let's call up the old standings here to help me because i'm going to try and guess on each one which team is the one that has deviated the most and this is and and to note this is from the day that we did our over unders so like obviously if you got them a little later certain teams could be in a different place so my guess is that the number one team in the Western Conference deviating the most from their over-under is the Memphis Grizzlies. That is correct. Yes. You want to do their stats? The Memphis Grizzlies, 6 and 15. A respectable 3 and 5 since we last uh, checked in on them. Things aren't going all bad for them this season, as we'll get to. Negative 5.4 net rating is 24th in the NBA. They are one of the delete eight, uh, as John put it, where you have these 22 competent teams and these eight that have not been very confident. They are 28th on offense. Elevators going up on defense where they are now 10th in the league, which is pretty good considering they're 28th uh, on offense. They still project for only 32 wins, though, per BPI at this point, which would be the 12th seed, only a 1% chance of the playoffs. But slight silver lining so far? Yeah, I would say potentially more than a slight silver lining for Desmond Bain. And 59% true shooting in the modern NBA doesn't seem earth-shattering. But when you have it that Bain is has a, up to a 30% usage rate and then um, basketball references version of assist percentage, 27%. Those are both career highs. And if you want to phrase it differently, I love Seth Partnow's total usage. Desmond Bain is up to 43.4. That is exactly the same to the 10th of a percent as Donovan Mitchell and broadly in line with Damian Lillard and Anthony Edwards. So well above, you know, like so there's a group around 40 percent like CJ McCollum, Tyrese Maxey, and then a lower usage guard group that includes Fred Van Vliet and Zach Levine. 
And if you want to know kind of like how that shifted last year, 36.8%, that was the lowest of any guard that Dan Feldman put on his all NBA guard awards worksheet was closer. You have to compare to other positions like Jalen Brown and Anthony Davis had the same size of role in their offense. And so Desmond Bain on this team that has broadly been bad offensively has had a large role and has done it reasonably well. Yeah. Now the rough part about that is that some of those superficial stats are similar to your Donovan Mitchell, your Anthony Edwards, and indeed Desmond Bain, the Grizzlies have been 7.5 points per 100 better when he's on the floor. Unfortunately, that still only gets them up to a 107.8 offensive rating, which is flirting with bottom of the league level. When he's off the floor, they just have absolutely nothing. It's really just miserable. They have a 100 offensive rating when he's off the floor. Uh, they're playing him as many minutes as they possibly can. Uh, he, he's played over 70% of the minutes for the Grizz this season, which is a, a pretty big number. He's up to 718 already. They're giving him all that he can, but they still are, are negative 7.1 when he's on the floor. A lot of that is just uh, some fluky defensive stuff uh, where they're 11 points per 100 worse when he's on the floor versus on the bench. I don't put that on him. So it is kind of interesting to think about, though, when you look at those raw numbers of 30% usage and total usage in the 40s and better individual efficiency than what Ja Morant has done. There will be something to talk about when Ja gets back of that maybe Bain should have a little bit larger of a role, though, as there are only two creators still, there probably is enough to go around for those two. But what is stuck out as far as how Bain is getting his shots and distributing this season? It looks like that kind of standard transition from a player being a secondary option to a primary. So last year, Desmond Bain ended 18% of his possessions as a pick and roll ball handler. Respectable, 235, you know, and for a, a second option, that's that's pretty good. He's already at 160, and that's positions ended as a ball handler. That doesn't even include passes. It does include turnovers. Um, so it's gone from 18% of his possessions all the way up to 28. And so you have that shift. And generally speaking, there are some exceptions. Pick and roll ball handling is a less efficient way to generate offense than a lot of other things. And like, for example, Desmond Bain taking a lot of that 10% is going away from is taken out of transition because you know you just can you can only get so many shots in transition you can't really scale that necessarily as effectively so it's a smaller proportion of possessions also less a little bit less as a spot up guy all that kind of stuff and like one of the ways that I want to think about this is Desmond Bain will have run more pick and roll by the halfway point in this season than he did all of last year even assuming Morant comes back from his suspension and plays the normal amount so it's just he, we're getting a lot more reps. I would say the overall I didn't watch like a ton of film and watched a little bit like I think that when you consider the surrounding talent, I think that he's done reasonably well. I don't know that I would be like if I were another team that I would be super excited about just like giving him the keys and thinking he's going to take us to the promised land. But for a player who was drafted in the late part of the first round, who has exceeded expectations in a lot of ways, just knowing that he has this is something you can fall back on is extremely useful, especially, as you mentioned, for the Grizzlies, who, yes, they have Bain. Yes, they have Marcus Smart, but they don't really have a traditional backup point guard. Like there are ways that Taylor Jenkins can structure this rotation when Jaw comes back to minimize some of their downside, even if the rest of the roster isn't where you want it. But Nate, the question I wanted to ask you, we, you, you kind of got into this, you got into this a little bit earlier in terms of like, well, what's Bain's role going to be? 
Logistically, and this appears to be what Zach Kleiman and company intended for the start of the year, the two players most capable of running the show once John Morant comes back and Morant is off the floor are both starting, those being Bain and Marcus Smart. Do you think that is a plausible rotation that they can run either Bain Smart or both of them in the minutes that John Morant sits? considering their roles as both starters and closers yeah you would hope that they could go that route maybe luke Kennard, if he's ever healthy again could be another guy who could at least share some of that ball handling with bain and if you're gonna play Kennard, that's kind of the role to play him in he can't really play huge minutes when you're also playing bain as well and you know, bain as a three in, in a lot of lineups is going to be overmatched particularly if you're giving him the ball a lot on the other end so i, I think maybe a bain Kennard backcourt and maybe you throw smart in with that group also it could get you to where you could be and most importantly that will push jaron jackson into more of a play finisher role because he, he's been struggling so much on the offensive end a little bit more on, on the pick and roll ball handler stuff for bain the best part of what he's been doing i think as a pick and roll ball handler has been taking the three off the dribble when he gets yeah. inside the arc getting to the basket he's only nine out of 24 trying to finish it at the basket uh when he's taking the jumper off the dribble the three ball it has been the best way for him to open things up a, a little bit and he's got a high handoff usage too like he's just you see the way his pick and rolls are split up it's 80 percent of them are just like high pick and rolls it seems like you know they're very predictable it's not like uh they have a ton of other options for creation off the dribble right now but the fact that he's managed to maintain this level of individual efficiency even though he hasn't necessarily been able to lift the team up to like crazy high levels given the lack of shooting i, I mean some of the other guys who've been playing with him that's not a huge surprise uh they probably one of the the worst surrounding personnel of any star with jaw out with smart out so that's not a huge surprise there man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same and then she did some more research and found helix sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types and uh, helix offers 20 unique mattresses everybody sleeps differently and helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences hot or cold side sleeper back sleeper so take that helix sleep quiz find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house 
Get that 100-night trial. They're 10 to 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us okay so who's next here unless you had anything else or, do you want to take do you want to take a guess yes the minnesota timberwolves not yet now it is the san antonio spurs oh jesus the spurs are a whopping three and 18 they have not won they're zero and eight since the last 1560 they are now though just second to last in cleaning the glass net rating they are negative 11.5 is ahead of only the detroit pistons and that's they they actually have the same number i'm guessing it's a fraction of a point um the spurs are 27th in both offense and defense projected to win 17 games which is last in the western conference they are not going to make the playoffs however there are some things that are maybe trending the right direction, even if they're still bad. Yeah, I had a note in here that now that we got Seth's stats up and running, I really wanted to dive into Victor Wembanyama's rim protection stats for the season. And I looked at it briefly. We referenced this, I think, with DeAndre Ayton some time ago of who the centers are that have really low contest percentages. And when I last looked at it, Wembanyama was in the high teens along with Ayton and Carl Anthony Towns. But of course, Wembanyama hasn't been playing a, a ton of center. And so I went back and looked at it to start the diving in more deeply and i was like whoa whoa wait a minute that, that's crazy his contest percentage up to 25 percent has only been two weeks like how how has that happened and so with seth stats we don't have the ability to parse it down into certain game samples at least not without asking him to do a one-off for us but i was like how could it have gone up by so much in just four games like he's played 20 games so i just looked at the games he's played in the last two weeks 
and they've played five games he's played in four he missed one uh second ever back to back with a, a hip issue victor Wembanyama has contested an average of nine shots per game at the rim over his last four games that is elite level of numbers that's right up there with the top guys in the league your chet holmgren's your miles turners and he's allowing 55 percent shooting at the rim on, on those plays and again that's a small sample only 36 shots so you know a couple makes it changes that of course but that still is a solid enough number for the season uh or, or well i i should say for the season he's in the low 50s uh by contrast zach collins is a 67 percent contest percentage over that period and, and contesting fewer shots than Wembenyama. so that that is a crazy number to tell you how crazy that is compared to what he was doing before in the 16 games before that Wembenyama contested only 69 shots wow and allowed 51 percent. very good obviously he's got that you know eight foot wingspan so basically four and a half a game and he's doubled that over the last four games when it's been nine so that's that's more like it that's what i wanted to see from him i wanted them to say hey like let's build his defensive game from the inside out rather than the outside in like yeah okay the fact he blocks a three-pointer every game is nice but that's that's one three-pointer like there's only so much you can do uh, on the perimeter like that's kind of more of a party trick than it is affecting every possession and so that like he he's huge and he should be in there like and now during these last four games they actually have a respectable 114 defensive rating when he is on the floor and that is by far the lowest on the team noting that he missed a game they also haven't had a pathetic loss since this change has occurred and then they changed up the rotation entirely and the starting lineup in this last game against chicago which is also i thought encouraging yeah, I actually, I want to give a couple more stats before we move on to the rotation thing. So yeah. overall, use this using cleaning the glass. The Spurs have a rough 121 defensive rating when Wembyamba is what they consider a center. So that means typically it's like Keldon Johnson or Doug McDermott at the four. But well, and we looked at this last time, right? Like the opponents were shooting like forty five percent from three or yeah. something in those. Minutes. It's still it's still forty two percent, and the yeah. rim protection numbers aren't fantastic. But you could expect that to to improve with time. And I mean, the forty two percent from three, and they're giving up a reasonably high volume as well. About thirty nine percent of opponent shots are from three during those minutes. So you could you could definitely that's not on Wemby, particularly when he's playing center. So and when so like the the idea that those numbers aren't great right now, but there's reason to believe they could be significantly better. But yeah, when you the rotation data. So in that Bulls game, they started Webinyama, then Keldon Johnson, Sohan, Devin Vassell, Malachi Branham. How you want to define certain positions offensively and defensively can get a little bit can get a little bit wonky. But he yeah, he is basically playing the straight five. Yeah, and he did overlap by, I don't know, maybe five minutes or so throughout the course of the game with Zach Collins, who played 23 minutes, Vic played 32 in that one. He was a team worst negative 22, but, and, and offensively, I mean, that still is a pretty brutal offensive lineup. And if you're going to play Malachi Branham and Sohan, like those guys are not really ready for prime time as like actual NBA rotation players. But the important thing is that he is actually playing center on defense and we'll see how that goes. Uh, uh, and, you know, I guess Sohan was still the point guard. Of course, you know, they can't start Trey Jones. He was only plus 12 in that game <laughs> and played only 28 minutes. They end up losing to the Bulls uh, in overtime. Fourth straight win for the Chicago Bulls, by the way. Uh, they were Save it for next week, Nate. Yeah. The Spurs now are, this is an amazing stat that Andrew Lopez had, one in 10 this season in games they have had a 10-point lead. Wow. 
had his, and, and they blew another one uh, in the the fourth quarter. This is a game that had a lot of crazy runs in it, particularly from the Bulls. It was uh, remarkable that the Spurs even got to overtime based on that. But yeah, I just we'll see how how it continues to evolve with Wembenyama. But the way that he's starting to be used and play, I think they finally are getting to take things a little bit more seriously, and that that's uh, encouraging. And they have been playing better. I think they're going to continue to play better. And I I, I hope and expect that they're not going to just be a joke the rest of the season the way they have been even though they are on this whatever it is 15 game losing streak or something like that uh i guess they were three and two at one point right so what are they what are they right now they're three and 18 yes so th- so they have lost 16 straight but but what is their upcoming schedule by the way Let's, do they have a chance of getting off the schneid anytime soon at houston then two games against the lakers at in san antonio then a home game against the pels at milwaukee at chicago at dallas What's their best chance for a win in there, you think? At Chicago, I guess? I don't know about back-to-backs, but probably Chicago. Yeah. Like, opponent back-to-backs. They don't have any during that stretch, which is good. But they maybe there's an opponent in there. That's not something I can search easily. I've thought about making kind of database with that. I've never done it. Um, and, and one other thing I wanted to throw out just briefly on the Spurs. They're high three-point attempt shooters are actually converting pretty well this year. So Champagny's making 38%. This is sorting by per 36 minutes. He's been playing more. He's been in the rotation recently. He's been in the rotation. And frankly, you know, there might be a point at which he should usurp Branham the way Branham has been been playing. Uh, I realize Branham is like, you know, considered the higher upside guy. But uh, again, if they're trying to just like actually win some games. (laughs) And so, okay. So Champagny, 38%. Vassell, 39%. 8.6 per 36. McDermott, 48%. Chetty, 30, 38, Keldon, 38. So like all those guys are are taking their threes and, and making them. But then you get into that like middle group and it goes south real fast because you have like Wembenyama and Branham and Zach Collins are all below 30%. And then Trey Jones, Sohan don't take any. Like Trey Jones takes fewer than three and a half per 36, Sohan fewer than three. And so at that point, it, it doesn't necessarily matter as much whether you're making them because teams just don't really respect it as a as a consistent threat. And by the way, Blake Leslie, I think he was dealing with an injury for part of this, but he's only played 24 NBA minutes so far this year. Yeah, I fear that's about what he deserves at the moment, but perhaps yeah. he can rehabilitate him. So it's too early to write him off, but it's, it's been a very good start. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed 
to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace user in capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us Minnesota's next now? No, they're not. OKC? No. It's a, it's another team that is underperforming their their, ex, Under their expected win total. Eh? You want to guess it based on that? Is it Utah? It is. The Utah Jazz were projected for 35 and a half wins. They are 7 and 15 on the season, 3 and 6 since the last 1560. And part of why the models are so pessimistic on them is that they are negative 8.7 in net rating that's 27th in the nba like they've they've just been they've been rough i want to get into a couple they, things on the stats say they've been dog shit <laughs> you certainly could i, I don't up. i don't need I even i i don't even need to say that they're head coach <laughs> um 26th in both offense and defense so one slot above the spurs in both huzzah and they're projected to be 26 and 56 which would be 13th in the west and there are a couple ways to to connect on this little I, I wanted to look just a little bit into the stretch that's marketed and went down hopefully that's a small amount of the sample though he's still going to be out when they kind of come out of this nba cup gap um they've been three and four since marketed and went down but all three of their wins including that set against the pelicans were close and all of their losses have been by double digits including getting blown out by 50 by the mavs in the game when luca had like a 29 point triple double at halftime so it is like so the overall win part of it is is nice but they've been getting crushed overall and it would have been good news that Walker Kessler was moved back into the starting lineup he's been recovering from this elbow injury and he's been playing but you know he's been coming off the bench unfortunately he is now out with right foot soreness we don't have a timeline yet but it doesn't sound too bad so i think this is maybe more of a a, a temporary condition but one that will you know affect the jazz and incidentally you've talked about this before this i don't think danny Ainge is too broken up about this because utah has a top 10 pick that they owe and so just kind of logging some of those losses now and making it pretty clear that they're not going to retain that pick makes makes things a little bit less pressure packed later on yeah part of why they've struggled so badly remember they actually were at a point where they were kind of competent offensively and with the demise of marketman they've just been completely hopeless there and a big part of that is Keontae george when you look at his his top line numbers in terms of true shooting and turnovers are, are pretty ghastly yeah, they're not, they're not fantastic in that respect. Um, Keontae George averaging 10.5 points and 5.1 assists per game, playing only 26 minutes of contest. He's been starting now for a little while. 34% from the field, including 39% on twos. And for those who prefer it, 48% true shooting on 21 usage with a 28 assist percentage. And so for George, I mean, 
he's being asked to do a lot. This is a, I mean, it was something that you and I discussed, and of course with David Locke and everything else, of like who the hell is going to start for this team. And part of the question is who's going to start, but the other part of it is like, can they score anyway? Well, they really only even, unless they were going to start Chris Dunn, which it seems like they're not going that direction. It's, you know, Taylor Horton Tucker or Keontae George. And Keontae George is part of their future. Keontae George probably does a better job of getting them into their offense. He's a better passer. And that's probably the biggest thing that stuck out to me from him is when you watch the film, it's really not bad, uh, right? Like right. He's, he's got some some nice highlights. There's this play, they're down 25, obviously, but end of the half uh, against Utah, or, or sorry, against Dallas, puts Luka in the pick and roll, goes behind his back, splits it, throws an alley-oop uh, to Yurtseven uh, out of a five on three. And he's got a lot of nice passes. Like He's averaging seven assists per 36. He's setting guys up uh, at the rim pretty well. John Collins, Yurtseven, Kessler, he's got a, a pretty decent chemistry with those guys. Like, he's throwing real value-added passes, certainly in a way that someone else we're going to talk about in this program later probably in the first half i would imagine uh has not been doing but so the flashes are there and his three-point shooting is not great was he shooting like 30 percent from three but he takes a lot uh, off the dribble like there are moments where it looks pretty good uh, anything else stick out to you from his statistical resume either with uh seth stats or, or uh anything else that we have access to sure with seth stats the overall role within the offense about 36 percent total usage that's in line with with not only a bunch of his teammates, like that Colin Sexton is in that range and a few other guys, but like Cole Anthony is there. I think CJ McCollum is around that area and and Malik Monk. So it's like you get this mix of like either lower scorers who ha- or Trey Jones is there too, like lower scorers who pass a lot or like scorers who don't pass quite a bit. But like the role within the offense is pretty material for him. And then the other thing that I always kind of key in a little bit, not that you know, you're building small samples, so this isn't definitive, is well, okay, what is the split between on the jump sh- on the threes that he's taking, what is the split between pull up and catch and shoot, not only in terms of percentage, but in terms of proportion, but also in terms of success. And so Keontae George so far this year, he's taking 2.3 pull up threes per game and making 36%. That's actually like, that's very good. It's not elite. It's very good. Keontae George is taking 2.7 catch and shoot threes and he's making 26.7% of those. Yeah. And he just has, that hasn't really been a big part of his game. He's always been an on right. the ball guy. See, he might be one of those rare birds, at least at this point in his career, who is more comfortable shooting pull-ups. And that, that again is something where when you look at kind of his highlights and his best games, like yeah, off the dribble three, like he'll makes, makes a pretty good one, 36%. Like, yeah, that's not bad again. You know, we're talking about to a game here, so it's not a, a crazy sample so far. But like, I've seen enough to believe that he is their starting point guard of the future right now. The thing that worries me probably the most is that he's taking only seven percent of his shots at the rim. He's a lot of floaters, not able to really like get on top of the basket in the half court. He has he's had like that one huge dunk uh in the Pels game but uh, aside from that he's got three dunks on the year uh you know not not necessarily what you expect from a 6-4 guard anyway but uh but he's not just like even though he's lost weight he's not like unbelievably explosive his handle is still a little loose but it's creative and and he'll make some some moves to get where he wants to go on the floor I think like there's really no part of his game right now 
that's you would consider to be good but he's shown enough potential in enough areas and he has solid size for the position and, and i think he has the right mentality that i think i mean it's going to be a while this is a 19 year old point guard we're talking about and it's very rare that those guys are able to be effective and he's not like he's killing them right now but so with the other options that they <laughs> yeah that's why he's starting if they had someone better than him that that person would be starting they don't so you the, might the way the, the way i would summarize it with george so far from what i've seen is he is intriguing enough that he should have the role now but he has not yet shown so much that it should dissuade the front office from taking a lead or take acquiring whether that's a whether that's drafting or signing or trading for a lead ball handler who they think is better so you know if i don't know who that's going to be what level of player we're talking about whether it's cap space or anything else but i'm not seeing you know in many ways i i think he's better than this but like I invoke the Colin Sexton, Darius Garland situation a lot, and now Colin Sexton is on the Jazz. But it is the idea of, like, I, I don't think that he's a sure thing, but I do like him relative to their other options. Yeah, I don't know if he's a sure thing, but he the profile of player that he is is one who can be strong in a lot of areas, including, including having pretty decent size at point mm-hmm. guard defensively. And he surely has a long way to go there, also in terms of his screen navigation, all the usual rookie point guard stuff. But yeah, I think like he can be a good fit because of his shooting ability. I think his off-ball shooting will improve eventually. So yeah, if you have a chance to, you know, you get the number one pick and you decide isaiah collier is the guy or something then yeah you know you go get it but also i think george can play in some two guard lineups and play off the ball a little bit too eventually at some point so i'm encouraged by what we're seeing from him i don't think he's necessarily quite you know an all-star in the future although i wouldn't that wouldn't like totally blow me away but i do think getting to be kind of in that next echelon you know 15th best point guard in the league 12th best point guard in the league i think that's totally on the table for him yeah like, I, I think he's going to be a guy who's going to get you know a, a 25 million dollar year contract or whatever the equivalent is at that point with and inflation to to factor it in also george he turned 20 about a month ago so he's you know age 20 season and and with the changes that have happened with his body and everything i was like i think there's a lot of room for him to potentially grow and improve and so for utah that's not the worst thing in the world to just kind of have this player in-house and that you could scale him theoretically back either to a complementary starting role or to a bat a bench guard who get who is an important part of your future and then you do that depending on what what and but you're only going to do that if the right opportunity presents itself. I don't think they're going to like break the bank for Trey Young if he becomes available necessarily. Uh, Nate, I have a little piece of let's call it bad news for you. Mm. The next team is a team that has exceeded their projection, but it is not the Minnesota Timberwolves. Well, it can't be OKC because they in Minnesota had like pretty similar over under. Correct. Oh, gosh. Huh, the heck would this be? Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. You don't have to. You don't have to exceed a high number. Oh, it's got to be Houston then. Correct. The Houston Rockets projected to win thirty-one and a half games original or over under thirty-one and a half. BPI is at forty for them now. So uh, you want to give their stats? Yes. Houston, after a rousing one fourteen one oh six victory over a Nuggets team that was actually had their starting lineup intact, sits at ten and nine. They got their elusive first road win in Denver, which I believe was also the first home loss for the Nuggets. And they are now four and four since we last checked in on them, but they are sixth in the NBA net rating plus four to point two. They've won two games fewer than their point differential would have predicted. They are 18th on offense, which I think is quite a coup 
frankly, to be there. And then fourth on defense in one of the great one season improvements we've ever seen on defense is in progress. They may take a little bit of a step back due to some of the shooting luck stuff that we've talked about before. But yeah, they are projected to win 40 games. That would still be 11 seed, but they're the 25% chance of the playoffs. Uh, and of course, the big reason why that's occurred are some of the new additions that they've made. For sure. And that's why I wanted to turn the focus there. And we can start with the highest profile and the highest dollar value, and that would be Fred Van Vliet. And broadly speaking, and this is true both with my eye test and with the some of the statistical foundations, it looks like Van Vliet is largely the same player in Houston that he was in Toronto, which is a lot of good things. He is a consistent defender. He is reasonably effective in pick and roll both as a as a scorer and kind of as a passer as well when you look at the overall numbers and there are a couple of things that are concerning van vliet's only making 39 percent of his twos and taking them at the lowest rate of his career um and he's normally a weak finisher at 55 percent but van vliet's only converting 47 percent in the restricted area this year that's really not fantastic and so that means you know 53 percent true shooting is largely the same as last year on a lower usage rate and something that i found really fascinating is that the rockets half court offensive rating with van bleed on the floor is basically the same as toronto's with van bleed on the floor last year however last year's raptors team the offense went off a cliff without Van Vliet on the floor. They went, the half-court offensive rating went down seven and a half points per hundred, roughly. It's going up in Houston, the roughly the same amount, plus six per hundred possessions. Some of that is unsustainable three-point shooting. But another part of it is, and I brought this up before with um, Desmond Bain and Marcus Smart a couple weeks ago, The from what I can see, again, both eye test and stats, Alpern Shangun is their most important offensive player, and their success and failure ties more to what he is on the floor and off rather than Fred Van Vliet. Yeah, no, that that seems totally reasonable. And but just the competence that Van Vliet has brought, I won't say that this statistical decline over the last two years is particularly surprising to me as a small guard who wasn't particularly athletic. But in terms of his leadership, his shooting ability, the ability to just not take anything off the table for his team on either end is just so important, particularly when you consider just who he's replacing. Right, we talked about Dylan Brooks and him. We'll we'll hit on them. In a second but i made this point in preseason but i think it's worth going back to it's not only that they sign these guys it's who they're replacing they're replacing well rookie jamari smith who is awful and is actually good now like that i think is kind of an underrated story that he's actually like an effective basketball player now uh kj martin who can't get off the bench in philly even though they really have kind of needed him now they've got some guys back maybe not but like he played 2300 minutes Shenkun is obviously a lot better. Kevin Porter Jr. played 2,000 minutes. Rookie Tari Eason played 1,700. Usman Garuba played 970. Daisha Nix played 914. Josh Christopher played almost 800. These are guys who are just like, who are not even in the league anymore. Yeah, or they're like on two ways, they're on two ways and not playing for the big squad. Yeah, I mean, basically just not, you know, Tai Tai Washington was 400 minutes. Guys who are just not even remotely figuring in a rotation. And this is a year later when they're should all be better uh so yeah it's and then you consider also like the the way those guys all fit together with the lack of shooting and kind of the the mistakes compounding because they're all young and stuff it, it shouldn't maybe it shouldn't be as surprising as it is that they are more competent 
it seemed like they had a long way to go, but just replacing even like semi, those guys with semi-average production, which Brooks and Van Vliet are better than that, is just so massive. On that front, one of the most telling stats for me with the Rockets, and you remember I fixated on this last year. For the prior two years, the Rockets were dead last by a lot in turnover percentage. About 16.5% of all possessions ended in a turnover. That's 13.5 now. So that's a whole bunch of times where a shot is going up. They've also gone from 30th in effective field goal percentage last year to 13th this year, which means that more of the shots that more shots are going up and more of the shots are going up. That is shocking to me that they're that high. And and some of that could some of that could tone down in time. We'll have to we'll have to see. I mean, they're they're shooting 38 percent on threes right now. And I I don't know. And that will actually tie in a little bit with the next guy we're going to talk about. But even if that regresses a little bit to the mean, that's still still a whole hell of a lot better. And like the idea of confidence and we're not even talking about the fourth on defense just yet. Next big addition, Dylan Brooks, not shooting like 52 percent on threes like early in the season. Forty two percent still pretty good for him. I mean, pretty good for anybody, but good for him. And a career high, 53% on twos. So you put those together, 61% usage, career high, on under 19 usage, which is almost a career low. Brooks' rookie year was slightly lower, but we're in that range. And his defense has still been good by numbers in the eye test. Um, His defensive EPM is actually stronger than last season. Um, And for Brooks, it's we've discussed him before but the idea that he could fill a smaller role in a successful offense is a huge victory for him reputationally and like he's giving the rockets what they need overall without taking as much off the table as we thought yeah that's part of why i was kind of against the signing i thought he would shoot more and he wouldn't be as efficient and that some of the development that they needed from these other guys would be stunted but that has been not the case at all and and he's given them a good leadership and tone setting uh, on the defensive end their backup bigs they signed a couple of guys to contracts that were larger i think than anyone anticipated jeff green and jack lando both making about eight million or so with the money that had been earmarked for brooke lopez uh, and never went to him and he's playing 15 minutes a game off the bench he's got a pretty small role at this point not shooting the three amazingly well but he's playing also more at center and he still uh is scoring really well from two-point range he's pretty low usage and uh yeah you know the the kind of guy where maybe we kind of hoped he would be this for a long time I mean, it's just it's shocking to me that I think this is almost 10 years after Memphis traded for him and we made fun of them. And then nine years after the Clippers traded for him, we made fun of them that he is still in the league. You never would have thought that, but he takes great, great care of his body and he's a good enough athlete and good enough locker room presence that he's able to hang around. Jock Landell, though, that one seems kind of headed for glad you got your one year, $8 million payday. We will not be picking up the final three non-guaranteed years at the same rate after this. Thank you. Landale's only played in about half of the Rockets games and only playing about 10 minutes per game in those. And we're dealing with a small sample for somebody who hasn't played that much, but really inefficient on offense, 43% true shooting so far this year, in part because Landale's only making 44% of his twos. And he was a positive in defensive EPM last year on the Suns, but was a negative the year before on the Spurs in a small, albeit a smaller role. So the idea that he was like a clear positive on defense was never entirely clear. And kind of thinking about those two guys, the decision, knowing what we know right now, which things can change for Rafael Stone, 
if they dropped both Landale and Green, the Rockets would be looking at 15 to 20 million in space in 24, depending on what happens with the Brooklyn pick they're getting. That's enough to add a difference maker to the rotation, but they could also keep one, probably Jeff Green, and just use the non-taxpayer mid-level, which isn't that much less based on the cap projections. Part of what might make the difference there decision-wise is if they have some preliminary feelers on players who might fit their needs and if they need to give more than the mid-level, like if there are teams that are actually offering it, because remember, so few teams used the non-taxpayer last year to like sweeten the pot enough to get like, I don't know if it's necessarily either Malik Monk or Buddy Heald, but somebody like that, like a not definitely starting, not definitely closing, but like valued part of the rotation type of guy. I think it'd make a huge difference for them. Yeah. Green, you'd think maybe they'd want to keep him around. Uh, Landale seems like an obvious one to, to move past. Now they can have cap space if they decline the Van Vliet team option in the summer of 2025. And so they may be trying to preserve that. But yeah, I mean, the big losers here, of course, uh, are the OKC thunder who probably thought they might be getting a top 10 pick potentially this year maybe not headed that way at the moment well it ties in with this theory that i've had since the Kyrie pick that unprotected draft picks seem to be most valuable a year out from when they actually convey because there's this idea of oh it could go in this direction then oftentimes whether it's the structural incentives of we don't have our pick so why don't we just try harder for it or just the the likelihood of a team that doesn't have the incentive to lose just being that bad. It, now, there are some blatant exceptions, including how the, the Celtics built their core. But generally speaking, those picks end up being juicier at a time before. And speaking of things that were juicier at a time before, Reggie Bullock, who I was very excited about joining the Rockets and, the, and, and like he you know, got bought out by the Spurs and wondering where it was going to go. He's only played 82 minutes the entire season, is basically out of the rotation. And 82 minutes, you know, not a big sample, but Bullock has only attempted two twos and one free throw in the entire season. So, yeah, and you you would think, again, that they would kind of need his skill set. But, yeah, it looks like for whatever reason, uh, he's either lost it or just hasn't gotten the opportunity. But maybe it meant something that Dallas was so eager to move on from him in favor of Grant Williams and was willing to give up a 2030 pick swap to do so. I think a couple of seconds as well. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. All right. I, I will guess again for the fifth time now. Wolves? Correct. Minnesota Timberwolves, 17 and 4, 8 and 1 since the last 1560. You could, it's reasonable to guess that in part because the Wolves are second in net rating in the entire NBA right now. 13th in offense and numero uno in defense. And that goes back to our discussion about defensive player of the year. 
And BPM projects them to finish with the best record in the Western Conference, 53 and 29. Anthony Edwards came back from that hit pointer on Friday against Memphis, but unfortunately he re-aggravated it in the first half and will miss at least Monday versus the Pels. We don't know anything beyond that. But even with that absence... Well, no, he actually even played Wednesday against uh, the Spurs. Okay. So, so he had played two games. So he played two games. Good. Um, And so... It's even with that absence, like things are going super duper well for the Wolves. Yeah, they just don't slip up uh, and they still that defensive rating over their last four games. It's a 104. So even even lower, uh, really impressive. And and that defense, even without Edwards, is something that they can use to be competitive in every game. But one thing that I was talking about uh, today with John was, you know, this is let's enjoy this while it lasts. They do have this fiscal cliff coming up where they're going to be 20 million into the tax. And that's without Mike Conley. And he really has been essential if you look at some of the possession and usage stats, Danny. He has. And this is the lowest usage rate. So that's more of a scoring element of it in Conley's career. But he's still assisting on a ton of stuff, and he's been more efficient as a scorer, actually, than basically any point in his career. 61% true shooting on 15 usage, but he's not turning the ball over basically ever, and their offense has been really, really good when he's been on the floor. Yeah, what are the numbers uh, on that, the the on-off for his offense? Using the cleaning the glass version, which you know you could use different ones for depending on what, what you're kind of looking for. Minnesota has a 115.5 offensive rating when he's on the floor, but they, you know, they're they're shooting relatively well. They're getting to the line relatively well. It actually doesn't drop that much. I thought it had dropped more when Conley was off the floor. So, but they do succeed in different ways. And I mean, I brought up the brought up the turnovers. Like his turnover rate is ludicrous for somebody who has the ball as much as he does. Yeah, and you might say, well, okay, he's. Scoring usage is 13%. Uh, this is now going to assess stats. Playmaking usage, 13.5% when you include uh, those are passes that are made that lead to shots, whether they go in uh, or not. And so, yeah, the turnover usage is minuscule, 1.3. For a guy who has that large of a, of a role, impressive. Now, you were talking about this with Keontae George. If like, you know, kind of total usage in the mid-30s is kind of where you're at for that lower tier guard. And Mike Conley, total usage only 28%. However, he has the ball 31% of the time for these guys. And you compare that to Carl Anthony Towns, he only has the ball 10.4% of the time. And he has a big usage. He turns it over a lot too. But Mike Conley is the guy who's getting them into their offense and not turning it over. Right. I mean, now part of that is just okay. He gets the ball to the spot where it needs to go, but he gets them organized. This is not like, and this is a team that really needs that because they don't have a a ton of shooting necessarily. They don't have a ton of like veteran influences offensively. Like they're, they're not like really a movement team or a backdoor team or anything like that. So when you see how much he has the ball, that kind of puts into stark relief how important his role is, right? Like his backup, for example, Shake Milton only has the ball 19% of the time and he'll play some Mm -hmm. with. Great point. With Kyle Anderson and Nikhil Alexander-Walker, you see that those guys, uh, it seems like Milton, Alexander-Walker, Kyle Anderson, those guys kind of share ball handling duties when Conley is out of the game. 
but none of them are, are particularly efficient off the ball the way that Conley is. And and so that's really so valuable to have someone who can get them into their offense, get the play started, but then also finish the play with his over 40% three-point shooting if needed. And he's still, you know, he hasn't gotten hurt at all this season. He's fourth on the team in minutes. He's been at about a 30-minute per game limit, but considering some of the hamstring issues that he had in Utah, it's really encouraging that he's able to stay healthy at 36 anything else that stands out to you as as we look at some of the the usage the time of possession stuff for minnesota you mentioned it with towns Nas reed 20 percent scoring usage set eight percent time of possession yeah he's get he's getting them up man to have and and, and, that, and in some ways that's kind of a good thing right sure. like if you're getting the ball to your scorers in a position where they can immediately do something with it that is useful and the other thing is just and again, what makes Conley so valuable is Anthony Edwards, 25% time of possession, and, and he'll they'll stagger him from Conley a lot too. But Edwards, 4% turnover usage. Carl Anthony Towns, 4.1% turnover usage. And that particularly for Towns, given his low time of possession, that's way too high. A lot, like you'll see guys like a Lowry Marketing, like some of these guys who are like real snipers and play finishers who don't possess the ball that much, but they're able to avoid turnovers. That's kind of, or like a Clay Thompson type of guy, like that's, and, and of course, Carl Towns is doing more driving than those guys are. And he's also dealing with a lot of traffic. But that's where a lot of his turnover usage comes in. But it, it really would be nice if he could cut down a, and the turnovers. And same with Ant. But at least Mike Conley kind of helps counteract that. But they're, I mean, they're, they're 13th on offense. I mean, that, I would say... That to me is probably more surprising than them being first in defense. If you were to ask me before the season, there had been a theory of like, oh, you know, they're replacing Vanderbilt with Gobert. Maybe they won't fall off that far from being seventh the year before before they brought in Gobert. But you know, it, it, I agree with you. I mean, they their defensive talent, even with McDaniel's missing as much time as he has, like there it it is good. And so yeah, you can you can certainly make that argument, and we'll see where that where that is later in the year to be sure the next team up is another underperformance and it's one that i fully expect to rectify by the um by the a larger sample and that is the phoenix suns the suns projected to win 51 and a half games but they're currently at 40 the bpi projection is for 45 and 37 in part because they still haven't had their three best players available at the same time 12 and 10 on season five and four since last 1560 Plus 2.8 net rating is 11th in the NBA. Their offensive rating is 9th. Their defense is 15th. I mentioned their BPI stuff, which means they're the 5th in the Western Conference and a 72% chance of making the playoffs. But, 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 Bradley Beal looks like he's going to be back on Tuesday. So we may actually get to see the theoretical best version of the Suns relatively soon. Yeah, I think we'll probably end up talking about that game in greater detail. And I think if Beal does come back, we've gotten a look at some of these role players and how they look. So I wanted to just go through with you, Danny, of like what some of the lineup combinations are that would make sense. So first of all, who do you think should start for them once Beal returns? It's a lot to ask of for either Beal or Booker to defend the the primary creator on the other team but one of the challenges just with the structure of the Suns roster is I don't necessarily love any of their other guys for that role you can consider a few guys like Eric Gordon or Josh Okogie could potentially do that he can do a lot of other things defensively my instinct is 
Keita Bates, Diop, and Nurkic. But depending on the circumstance, you could talk me into Okogi, you could talk me into Eric Gordon, you could talk me into when he's healthy this year little. But I think it's probably my baseline. My base would be KBD and Nurk. Well, I may have spoken too soon about all of them being together because I'd forgotten that KD had actually not played due to an ankle issue. That's right. Which which I think he, he suffered that in the game against the Lakers. And he is a possibility for the Tuesday game uh, against the Warriors. So if he doesn't play, then we probably won't do that. But uh, yeah, that, that's kind of a bummer. And they lost at home to Sacramento <laughs> when it was uh, Devin Booker playing 38 minutes. And uh, th- they had to kind of cobble it together aside from that. Yeah, I mean, hard to imagine that they would go Eric Gordon in the starting lineup and he's probably been playing too many minutes too he played 38 minutes the other night as well so yeah of who is that for I mean they started Bates Diop in that game I think that probably makes the most sense like he hasn't Bates Diop hasn't really been asked to shoot the ball Akogi was starting at the beginning of the year he started in that game too yeah I'm not really I mean Nasir Little probably not he barely played even though KD was out so yeah probably ends up being yeah it's either Bates Diop or Akogi you would think next question who if you have these three stars in the playoffs maybe you do this to keep two of them on the floor at all times it might be possible to do it not going to do that during the regular season so which of the three would you want most leading a lineup by themselves i think of that more so so you could think you could consider it in terms of whose skills are the most synergistic but you can also consider it like who can do the job the best when they're by themselves and for me the answer to the second question is devin booker and so I think you can construct rotations. You can construct lineups that are Booker centric. And it's already been the case this year. Like the Booker only minutes have been fabulous overall. And you can, you know, with the spacing that they have and you could put some defenders on the floor. So I would lean more on Booker in those minutes and then have more of Beal and Durant together. Yeah, I agree. And then hopefully you can use Eric Gordon as another ball handler as well. I think that that would make a lot of sense. How about the closing lineup? Any any difference than the starters? Would you try to work Eric Gordon in at that point? Potentially. You still have the point of attack question, but maybe in those minutes you can have Booker do some of it or you can kind of go in a couple directions because most of the teams you face, even if some of them in the playoffs don't, rely a lot on Booker. Like that's just the the way that it, you know, most NBA teams function. So there I Gordon can do that at times. And and he's somebody that you have to defend that can stretch the floor and experience. The one that's most interesting to me there is whether you need Nurkic, Eubanks, or neither on the floor. And we're just going to have to see where Phoenix's defense is in the no center lineups. I mean, I don't think Metu is the closer there necessarily. But, you know, I think they should they should try some things out. Yeah, if they're going up against an OKC or maybe even, frankly, a, a Minnesota, you might consider those lineups more. If you're going up against the Lakers, obviously, if you're going up against Denver, you probably are going to need a, a little bit more size, you would think. But, you know, Minnesota doesn't really beat you up on the interior that much offensively. And so you might as well go with your best offensive group to space them out particularly to space out gobert i think w- is would be really important if that were the matchup golden state and you know we'll see i don't know if golden state's earned even like being in this discussion for playoff matchups uh, against phoenix uh, necessarily um anything else on these guys i'm hoping we get more information on what they kind of like what they look like what frank vogel wants in this in this team and i mean for me something else that'll be really key to watch not only like how beal's playing and what the rotations look like is 
do we start to see any movement on like whether Nurkic is like definitely a part of the starting lineup? And like we've seen already seen Eubanks and some other things with closing lineups. So the center position is another like that becomes kind of like the biggest question mark once Beal is goes from question mark to some sort of answer. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. Okay, next guess here. Team that we haven't covered yet that deviates the most from their over-under. Would that be the Golden State Warriors at 10 and 12? So it's it's actually the Thunder, but you've done a lot of teams in a row, so I think I kind of want to do the Warriors, if that's okay with you. Yeah, um, no, no, let's to, do it because we, we got to catch up on this. Uh, their game against Portland, too. We do. And so you want to give their stats? 10 and 12, 4 and 4 since we last checked in on them, and three of those four losses have just been execrable. Uh, the blown lead to the Kings, blown 20-point lead to the Clippers on a Saturday matinee, team record 29 turnovers under Steve Kerr in the loss uh, at OKC. Just as a general proposition, should they be like, man, like these guys can't close, like they're they're making mistakes uh, late in games, like, uh, or should we actually be like taking some heart that they at least are like capable of playing well enough to build these leads in road games against good teams? I think based on how they've overall played so far, it's more the former than the latter. But if they start to get a better version of Wiggins, a better version of Clay, a few other guys, then the like the fastball still being not there, but being closer to there is is potentially useful information. And and the Warriors are going to they're not their sink or swim conversation is going to isn't necessarily going to happen soon. But the like kind of the evaluation of, well, where do we go from here? That is going to, you know, probably the next two months is going to determine a lot. And, you know, at some point you're going to have to win some of these games. Yeah. And it has been discouraging that Andrew Wiggins showed some signs a couple of weeks ago, closed his ring finger in a car door and it hasn't looked good the last couple of games since then. You were at Warriors Blazers on Wednesday. What were some of your big takeaways? I managed to catch the fourth quarter of that one. Well, so before we get to that, I, I mentioned this in a previous pod. Clay Thompson still doesn't have a dunk this year. Nate, do you want to guess what proportion of Clay's shots this year are in the restricted area? And if you want, I can give you his career average before, or no, if no, you want to just do I'll a blind. 5%. Career, 13.2. This year, 2.8. Yeah. Now, let's note that the, the half of the games he's playing in uh, the Warriors' home stadium where basically you have to get a dunk to get credit for a shot in the restricted area. So that's... And as we said, he gets no dunks, so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, if you just think about 
what their offense looked like at the height he was he would lead the nba generally when you look at synergies cuts metric and a lot of times for bigs that's like okay you're standing in the dunker spot somebody drives dumps it off to you and you dunk it for guards though that usually was actually truly what you would think of as cuts and he would usually be the best guard in that category and and he just was like not getting any of those like little back doors that he used to get it it seems like i mean that's really kind of more and i don't know if it's he doesn't move as quickly off the ball or he's just not as big of a threat or maybe just that the league like everyone runs all this stuff now and like those little back cuts are just teams are ready for it but that that's been an important element of his game that is making it a lot harder for him to be efficient one other stat kind of related to that in the Kerr era Clay Thompson has had roughly 74, 75% of his twos assisted most years, especially before the before the injuries. That's at 69% now. So it's like, you know, about 5% more of his twos are, are self-created. And generally, those are terrible. Like, those haven't gone particularly well for Clay. And for the game against the Blazers, um, it was definitely a different contest. Um, DeAndre Eaton didn't play at all due to knee soreness. And so the so the Blazers are playing very small. I mean, there were a lot of times where Tumani Kamara, who I continue to love, is simultaneously their tallest player, but also guarding Stephen Curry. And so that means you can think about what some of the the help responsibilities and everything else were. And I primarily like I attended the game. It's funny. I I got there as fast as I could after we broadcast the um, Cavs Magic game for League Pass. And the big reason why was to see Scoot Henderson and Shaden Sharp. And Scoot, I thought it was a mixed bag. There were times where his mid-ranger looked really good, where he's, you know, like he looked confident. He had a couple plays where he was driving to the basket and got fouled, one of which became free throws, one of which didn't and probably should have. And he had a couple good passes, not the best of his career. Still, you know, like, okay, he could, he's doing something there. But I thought that Shaden Sharp really did show some flashes, and it was on on both ends of the floor. He had a couple of plays where he just like, you know, he looked significantly more athletic than anyone who was out there for either team. And what my single favorite play of his was defensive. And that was where the Warriors got a steal and they threw a hit ahead pass to Stephen Curry. This is in the fourth quarter. Sharp got back so quickly, both effort and him being really fast to force Curry to slow down and not just take the shot himself, whether it was a layup or a, or a, or a three. Eventually, the ball goes to Green and to Moses Moody, and Moody should have made the two. He missed the finish. But so Shaden Sharp's hustle significantly downgraded the quality of that possession for the Warriors. And this was at that point, it was a very close game. I think it was about five minutes to go. And good to see that from Shaden Sharp. And at times, his three ball looked really good. He was four of nine. And so I wouldn't say it was an unqualified success for those two guys, but I will say that Sharp really impressed. Yeah, I thought it was odd down the end of the game that they didn't go to him and it was the Simon show. It was his first game back. He ended up 10 out of 27 from the field. Well, I can explain part of that. Yeah. So part of the reason why I think Chauncey Billups went in that direction was that there were earlier points in the game. Simon started, but he also became a, a key creator for them alongside Scoot Henderson in the minutes where Brogdon was not on the floor and then Brogdon ended up not playing in the second half at all. And so Simons, he really helped them in a couple of key stretches at the beginning of the second, and I think it was maybe the beginning of the fourth. And so I think Billups, particularly in a game where Brogdon didn't where Brogdon didn't close because he was hurt, that 
he kind of trusted the old hand there and thought, you know, like Simon's, he's not old, but he's like, he, he has more experience with this organization than any of the other gentlemen we're talking about who are available. And so I, I agree with you. I think it was a mistake just because Simon's oh. against the best iterations of the Warriors wasn't as dynamic as he was against the second unit. Surprise, surprise. But that's why it happened, just to explain it. Yeah, and Sharp did play 42 minutes. I mean, Phillips, was, well, he will definitely play Sharp like a deranged amount of minutes when these guys uh, are not available. And yeah, the, the Blazers closing lineup, uh, I thought was pretty interesting. They had Jabari Walker. He fouls out on uh, uh, trying to defend a screen with like five minutes left. So they go with Sharp, Simons, Matisse Thibel, Scoot Henderson, and Tumani Kamara as their closing five. And they almost actually pulled it out. Thibel hit a big three with the under 40 seconds to go like they were up by 10 a lot of the game and, and then the Warriors came back on them and Warriors are up four they almost blew this game Thibel misses a or hits a three which they kind of left him open but Thibel's actually been shooting a little bit better this year and then they get a stop a missed Andrew Wiggins layup Tumani Kamara gets the rebound but falls down and ends up just throwing it right to Steph Curry who milks the clock and then hits a step back to push it to four and, and the game was over but they it was a good effort by the Blazers like they've been pretty competitive lately they have been, and they're still playing a lot of young guys. One of my favorite things that Chauncey Billups did at some moments in the fourth quarter, not at the very end, in part because of the foul trouble, they were playing Kamara and Walker defending Curry and Draymond, so they were just switching all of those actions, and it just slowed the Warriors' offense down a lot. And Golden State, when Wiggins is more limited, when Clay Thompson, you know, 3 of 13 from the field, 1 of 8 from 3 in this contest— and I, I, that's part of the, they weren't punishing the Blazers for the limited defenders they were putting on other guys. And I love, I like the idea of making the, making the Warriors do something other than what they want to do. And like Looney, Looney was largely a non-factor in this game. And so that is a part of why Kuminga and Moody ended up being such important positives for the Warriors is that they're willing to attack. They're willing to even sometimes make mistakes to just maximize an opportunity. And I thought that that made a really big difference for them. And I've criticized Kerr a lot for prioritizing like guys who don't make mistakes over guys who make plays. And, and it, not, not that Kaminga played, like Pajemski played more than Kaminga in this game, but Kaminga did get the latitude to really try stuff. And he was on the floor in the closing lineup and made a huge play at the end that helped seal it. It may well have been a watershed moment that Jonathan Kaminga starts this game completely out of the rotation. This is the first game they've had everyone back. Chris Paul is back. He ends up getting ill in Oklahoma City and didn't play. They probably could have used him to not turn the ball over 29 times. But Kaminga doesn't play. And then he plays, I think, basically the last 17 minutes of the game and was fantastic. He finishes off what, what looked like the ending bucket and until Thibel hit that three to make it close again uh, on a QB keeper from Draymond. He was up there for just a huge dunk. And I think there's been kind of talk, I mean, maybe even by the coaches that, and this of course is to try to uh, preserve some of the sensitivities of some of the veterans. I shouldn't say, or not preserve, but uh, to protect the sensitivities of some of the veterans where it's kind of viewed as like, oh, it's Moody versus Kaminga versus Pajemski. Like, no, the, the two guys that 
Kaminga should play over who would lose minutes to him are Kavon Looney and Dario Sharch. Like Kaminga is the four, you move Draymond to the five. Like Kaminga's not taking minutes from Moody at the three necessarily, but it's easier to just frame it as the young guys and not like, well, Kavon Looney is just not going to close. And they've stuck with Looney starting the last couple of games. They're still trying to get that unit that was so good previously to work. But with Clay and Wiggins not hitting shots, and I think more importantly, Looney hasn't been an elite defensive player. And he's also struggling to finish. I guess you, you had some numbers on, on that for this year. Yeah, Looney career 71% at the rim. And he's at 65% so far this year. And Notably, his turnover rate is way up too. So, you know, it's still a low number, but like he was turning it over, let's use per 36, roughly eh, about a turnover per 36. He's up to 1.5, and that doesn't sound like a lot. But remember that Kevon Looney rarely touches the ball, and he really rarely touches the ball with a circumstance where a turnover would even happen. Well, and he, but he like was notable for having a crazy low turnover rate because he's one of these bigs who like sets a lot of screens and like gets mm. people screens and stuff. Like we noted that he had under, below a ten percent turnover rate for a low usage guy. That's actually remarkable. But yeah, that, that has gone up. He's getting more illegal screens. Yeah, it's now year. it's now seventeen percent this year is his turnover percentage of the Basketball Reference version of the stat. Um, um, yeah, and then Kaminga, again, he's had 24 points against OKC, and yeah, he's going to turn it over some, but I maintain that Kaminga as the closer next to, uh, you know, take Looney out, put Kaminga in, that is their highest upside group. I think that also would enable you, if you were thinking about it, to maybe put Chris Paul in for Clay Thompson. Potentially, they haven't crossed that Rubicon yet. Or, or or Moody for Clay, depending on the circumstance. Yeah, I, I mean, they haven't crossed that Rubicon yet of Clay Thompson not closing a game. I think at some point, especially in games when he doesn't have it, they're going to have to think about possibly doing that. Uh, when Because I, I just don't think that anyone other than Steph Curry and Draymond are like totally like so good and so indispensable on this team. But clearly, that is their only group, I think, that they can get to that has enough size and defense and athleticism to be viable defensively in the playoffs because Looney just isn't viable offensively in the playoffs, nor has he given them enough defensively. I, I hope he can turn it around because he's been one of my favorite players for a while, but it, it just has been playing him. I, I mean, he, he he's probably going to just be getting the Keith Bogans from now on, but it's I'm not even sure he should be in the rotation at this point. Uh, yeah. Him, like, you know, and just play Sharich and, and Kaminga now. Like he does, uh, going up against big centers, maybe he should play, but Kerr said after the Portland game, like we may switch up our starting lineup from game to game well if there was ever a game to not start Kavon Looney it would have been this game against OKC that doesn't play like some big center that's like trying to post up and stuff you know going up against Demonis Sabonis sure start Looney like he does a good job against him uh but yeah unless it, I think that should really be kind of more matchup dependent any uh, other Nate, yeah so do you want to give do you want to give the Blazers stats and I'll throw some other notes on them yes yes exactly uh, good call there six and fifteen respectable three and five since we last checked in on them they've gotten a little healthier but then now brogdon is out again simons is back they are 25th in net rating negative 7.2 they are dead bang last 30th in offense and that's i expect that to go up now that simons is back if they could get simons and brogdon healthy at the same time it would actually be pretty good scoot i think he's he's at least playing a little bit more within himself and like i don't know hopefully he's not in a situation where he's going to just like kill them Keontae george style uh they're 12th in defense though pretty impressive mm -hmm. and you know guys like kamara really one of the 
unsung like best defenders now he can't really hit a shot that's a little bit of a problem he's part of their problem uh, on offense uh at some point he's going to need to do that he doesn't necessarily have like the greatest passer setting off for wide open threes or anything but uh, you know he also plays power forward which makes it a little bit easier and uh but yeah 12th on defense for them is very impressive so they are headed for 14th in the western conference according to bpi 25 wins and zero percent chance of the playoff to me, the Blazers, when I've when I've watched them, they've been more of like the way I would describe it is more of like a run of the mill lower end team rather than like a straight up bad like dregs team. Since they've gotten closer to their whole complement back, they got a couple of nice wins against Central Division teams. Uh, they won in Indiana and in Cleveland before losing three games that were close-ish. They, you know, the Warriors game, they were they had a chance to win late. They went to overtime against the Jazz. And then the Dallas game, like, I never thought they were going to... I personally, like, in the parts of it I watched, I never thought they were going to win. But, like, they were there. But, um, as you mentioned, love Tamani Kamara's energy on both ends. He had two really nice tip-ins late in the second quarter, which helped kind of keep the pa- keep the Blazers on pace. And it hasn't been a uniformly... Great start for Chris Murray, where, you know, he's still kind of playing part minutes off the bench and 45% true shooting. But he did have a really nice stretch where he hit a a smooth three, you know, like motion looked totally fine, all that kind of similar to his identical twin brother. And then Murray deflected a charge pass for a steal that became a, a transition finish. So the idea of like being active on both ends and he has, you know, forward size to be sure. And so for the Blazers, like part of what they're doing this year is figuring out, well, where can these guys fit in on a more whole version of this team? And in part, the whole version could come when they just get some of their dudes healthy, some of whom may eventually get traded. But another part of that is over time as you, you know, add draft picks to this mix, as you you sign players with cap space or however that's going to work. And he's a flawed player, of course, but. There were some moments where Matisse Thibel just absolutely wrecked the Warriors offense where because he, he can just be so destructive. And it wasn't necessarily him guarding the lead ball handler, whether that was Steph Curry or it was Chris Paul, who was available in this game before he got sick in the OKC game. It was just like him be- seemingly being everywhere in the passing lanes. He had a, a, a good block as well. And I just had I had a note at one point, I think it was in the early fourth quarter, where he's just wrecking everything. Like it, it just seemed like the Warriors couldn't even get a play started because of, of how he was doing. And so I don't think that Thibault needs to be a part of this team. I also don't think that anybody's like champing at the bit to trade for him right now, given the contract that the Blazers signed uh, him well, to. I, I don't know. I mean, he's taken 5.83s per 36. I'm mm-hmm. making 41% of them and he's like good on defense. Like that's, that's actually like oh, sp- speaking, speaking of that Draymond green, 45% on four threes per 36 so far this year. Yeah, That's been really interesting. I, I, it's hard to believe that's real. Yeah. A, a, a straight note on that. Draymond really only has one good shooting season, 15, 16. Of course it would be that year. Um, 39% on, on a reasonable volume that year. And then most other years have been well below that non-standard. Um, my single favorite play, I actually laughed out loud, thankfully, mostly because nobody was injured. There was a play in the, I think it was the late second quarter, where Chris Paul tried to flop to draw an over the backbreaker. So it wasn't like in, in that circumstance, but instead he flopped so hard, he fell into Tamani Kamara and actually fouled him. 
So it was a. Oh a, man, a, how did I? How did I miss that? I, I it was in the part of the game you didn't that. watch. It was. It was fantastic, oh, and yeah. I just. I. I lost it. I can't remember who it. Uh, as I guessed it, was like I think they looked at me like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "This is perfect." And you know, I, I thought Kaminga played. Kaminga played really well, and so for the for the Blazers, with you know Reith starting at center, and you know no no Aiton, no Robert Williams for this entire season, like they. They were feisty. They played hard. They didn't make a ton of mistakes. The Warriors don't necessarily force them, but the the King the Blazers only turned the ball over ten times, and only four of those were live ball. And that's given yourself a chance to be in it. And it helped that the Warriors couldn't make a three. They were like two of sixteen in the first half, ten of thirty four in the whole game. But you know, like I I walked away from it feeling better about the watchability of the Blazers over the course of the season when they're closer to healthy. All right, that will do it for our first half of the 15 and 60. Stay tuned for the second half tomorrow as we recover from uh, the weekend in Vegas. Actually, I don't really go that hard anymore, so it wasn't too bad. But I went hard enough that I can't do a decent outro. So I, I do exhort you, if you're listening on the public podcast, to subscribe to Dunked on Prime and get all of the many benefits, uh, including Danny's and my chats, uh, Seth Partnos chats, Dan's chats, Dan's daily dunks, which you get in both podcast and email form, whichever you choose. And uh, of course, every Hollinger Duncan episode and every Dunked on Prime episode with me and Danny up to five days a week. So consider that as a gift for this holiday season. Talk to you all soon. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor.